Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Debate Night yet again. I'm Hunter, joined as always by Brody and Silas. And Brody is already at in Emporia, not at Emporia. Uh, the World Championship starts a week from today. Is that right? Tuesday. Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesday. Yes, it's Tuesday through Saturday. Yeah, we go Joe and Supreme. Well, it's depending on if you're Pool A or Pool B. Pool, pool A will have all the high-rated players. So it'll be Joan Supreme, Country Club, Joan Supreme, Country Club, Country Club. They'll make a mm. cut after four rounds and then Country Club. And then the finals at Country Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's – we'll talk about Worlds here in a second, but remind me when we get there that I think to bring up that I don't understand why it's going Tuesday through Saturday instead of Wednesday through Sunday. But we'll talk about that later because first got to talk through Des Moines. Um, which happened this past weekend. And the first storyline of it that I think is pretty obvious that I want to get your experience as a player was the weather situation that came in. And then obviously you had to play two rounds on Saturday morning. There's Mm -hmm. several cards that had to do that. Uh, How did that change the dynamic of the tournament, do you think? So I think the first thing with the weather is obviously the disc golf pro tour is very very cautious they have i believe it's a 10 mile radius that they do so any lightning strikes within 10 miles they'll pull everyone off the thing that i think which is fine and like you're not gonna you're not gonna see any valid arguments from any players saying like no we should be playing right now yeah because the way how obviously the way how the way it turned out where the storm cells ended up kind of missing just north or just south, and we're just kind of moving to the... Oh, so it didn't even hit the course, really? No. Um, but there was a re- it was a really, really bad cell, and I don't know if you saw Gannon's Instagram yeah. post, um, but that was r- sitting right on top of us in Des Moines, and we were just south of there, about 15 miles or so south, um, but lightning strikes from that cell were, were getting within 10 miles from us. So I think that all makes sense. I would say the only thing that was slightly frustrating was it seemed like we could have gone back out and played, but more storms were supposed to come in. And so that's where it was kind of weird because it wasn't like one of those of like, all right guys, well, we're just, we're just canceling today. No way we can do it. Yeah. There's just trash. It was one of those of like, well, we could send you back out there, but it would probably all be only for 30 minutes. And then we'd have to pull you right back off because these storms are coming. Well, I don't think the storms ended up ever actually coming. So, Uh It was one of those of where obviously they were being, you know, cautious with everything. And I can see their side of things of like, yeah, do we want to start up the live stream just to have to stop it 30 minutes? You know, there's a lot of uh, logistical stuff. I'm sure that made sense to, you know, not just to cancel the round, not cancel the round, but suspend the round for the day. Yeah. But it was one of those things of where, you know, me, Ezra and Calvin were all practice putting outside of our hotel at, you know, seven thirty, all the way through to like eight thirty, And we were kind of like, man, 
Like at the end of the day, we probably could have gotten nine, 10, 11, 12 round, uh, holes in. So I get, I understand, I understand both sides. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of those where I think if the Pro Tour probably had more resources, that for sure they would have sent people out. And it's also a rule too of like, there's not really anything in the PDGA. Or I guess there's stuff in the PDGA rules that you can basically interpret both ways. You can interpret to where it's like, all right, well, round one never happened. We're going to play a two-round tournament. And then you can interpret of, uh, oh, no, we can just finish the rounds the next day and it's fine. Um, I did hear something about, like, 13 holes. I don't think that's actually that's a yeah 13 holes is what it it requires to be like an official rated round is what that rule is okay so that doesn't have any impact then on on actually play uh like having it be part i don't know what yeah i don't know how much that like affects like is the pdga like since it's not a rated round it doesn't count towards the tournament i just know 13 is the minimum to get a rating that's i know that's true there's a lot of interpretation yeah i think how they ended up doing it was the best way they could have done it. You know, I don't think having, if you can have a three round tournament, I don't think having two rounds is the way to go. Like just to have two rounds. And the way I view it is like, at the end of the day, everything is going to probably even itself out throughout the season. You're going to have some times where you're going to have good draws where, you know, you're going to tee off in the afternoon and the weather was terrible in the morning and you got good weather in the afternoon. And mm-hmm. I think that stuff kind of all evens itself out. So, you know, I'm sure there are some people complaining about I had to play two rounds in one day or um, the weather was actually a lot better on Friday than Saturday. So yeah. hence why you saw like people shoot 11, 10, 9 under on friday and then i think the the only bradley williams and emerson keith out of the the cards that played in the morning those were the the two hot rounds in the morning and they were both eight under so the scoring was definitely different i think you also saw it from the fpo side too of where the fpo had a lot of people play really really well on friday saturday the scores got kind of brought back so scoring was a lot harder on saturday but Again, it's one of those things where I think all that does even out. It definitely sucks when you are in a tournament where you're on the bad side of the draw. Um, But it's just kind of how it works. The one thing I would say that is, I would say if if we were trying to pinpoint something that was maybe unfair and something that maybe needs to get looked at at a certain point in time is... The handful of people that are like consistently on feature cards, I have no problem with them being on feature cards. They need to be on feature cards because that's what pays the bills. And that's ultimately what's going to drive viewership up, which is ultimately going to hopefully bring in sponsors. And then that trickles all the way down to all the other players. So I'm definitely not one of those people that thinks feature cards should be something where everyone should get on and it should be sprinkled around. But I will say there is definitely a super advantage to being on a feature card consistently and always playing in the afternoon and never having a random 10 o'clock tea time, 10.30 tea time. 
there's nothing we can do about it right now just because of how the the pro tour is set up with the disc golf network but that is something that probably does need to look be addressed and looked into at some point of where if they aren't super time constraint of like no we're only filming at this time so we need to have the feature cards this time always that would be something um that probably needs to be looked at because I do think maybe those tea times need to get, be a little on the first day, at least need to be a little bit more random as far as when they go off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you looking at the tournament, you, it's pretty obvious that there was a distinct disadvantage to the players that went off Saturday morning. Uh, Like you said, there was nothing to be done about it. And it's not really like a, uh, knock against the tournament or anything. Was but Emerson I mean, the highest finisher for the people, the person, the for the people that had to go off two rounds. I think so. Yeah, but I mean, you had four of the best players in the world. Um, which you have five, four. You had Chris, Calvin, Paul, Ricky, all going off Saturday morning, and the best one of them finished sixteenth. And then you had like thirty fifth, fifty seventh, which for the four of them, you know, typically at least one's going to be in the top. Actually, pretty much. I would, I'd be curious if the stats true, but I would imagine every tournament they start, one of them's in the top 10, surely. Because, like, the four of them, someone's going to play good. Mm-hmm. So to see all four of them farther down the leaderboard, I think is, you know, proof enough that there's a slight disadvantage that Saturday morning. But like you said, they, they could have been less cautious, but I don't think you ever want the Pro Tour to be less cautious about weather because all it, takes is one, all it takes is one time, one instance with a spectator or a player, and then... You know, you have a whole different set of issues versus the issue we're dealing with now is like maybe maybe someone else would have won the tournament or maybe someone else would have finished in the top ten is basically what it boils down to. So, uh, but but in that morning group, you were able to put together a pretty solid round. Um, I believe you shot six under that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the afternoon round, you kind of struggled through, and it looked like you were getting affected by your knee is what it seemed like on coverage uh was that mainly just from playing two rounds in one day under tournament pressure or like what what exactly was going on yeah so i twisted my ankle pretty bad at left down and uh i think that kind of you know sometimes when you jack something else in your body it ends up putting a lot more pressure on another joint kind of in your body like change how you walk and stuff like that and so i think that ended up kind of tweaking my knee a little bit and I've been able to manage it pretty well just simply by, you know, reducing the amount of throwing I've been doing and increasing recovery as far as uh, doing the Normatec stretching, foam rolling, icing, elevating, all those type of things to kind of keep the swelling in check. That day was just, it was just a tough one to do where, you know, you start at seven in the morning, you end up finishing around 12 or so, then you have like a four hour break. And then you get back to warming up and then going back out there. Um, it was, yeah, it was definitely frustrating because that this is a course, one, one of my favorite tournaments to play. Uh, it's also a very fun course to play. And it's one that I think I can be very competitive at. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I ended up, uh, I ended up starting fine and picked up a couple bogeys on uh what was it four five and six or three four five and six i think something like that just by throwing ob shots five was five was causing me problems all week um until i finally went forehand the final round 
Yeah, I was um, surprised you weren't going forehand. Yeah, the wind. Was it wind? Yeah, it was just the headwind was really bad on Saturday on that hole. And I told mm. myself pre-tournament, like it was a headwind, I'm going backhand. And I think I should just, I need to trust my forehand into a headwind. And yeah. I wasn't doing that on Saturday. But yeah, those those first couple bogeys, those were all just bad shots that all ended up going OB. Um, but my knee was still feeling fine. So I'm not... I'm not making excuses and saying my knee caused me to throw those OB shots. It wasn't probably until like maybe hole 10 that I started kind of feeling it a little bit, I would say, uh, to the point of where it was starting to maybe affect my timing. And then it took me a couple holes, but then I just started like figuring out how to throw without really using my lower body, if that makes sense. So I was definitely throwing a lot more upper body stuff. I was still able to man. I think I ended up shooting like a couple under par on the back nine. Um, so I was managed, managed to kind of salvage something, but yeah, that, that round was very, very tough for me. And I just didn't play well, which was really unfortunate because I, I, I was still kind of in the mix at six under. Yeah. Um, and I knew obviously that Saturday was going to play pretty tough in the afternoon. It wasn't as windy in the morning, but it was still windier than it was on Friday. So I knew scores weren't going to be as good as Friday. And yeah, I think kind of looking at my tournament and like the overhaul of my tournament, I think one thing, especially going into worlds that I really need to work on is just picking my shots. I've kind of gone, I've kind of gone too much on the extreme of like trying to birdie everything. And when I don't throw a good shot, trying to throw an incredible shot to still get the birdie because I know that, you know, you have to get birdies to win tournaments out here. But I think I've gone a little bit too extreme on that. Um, and looking at my final round is kind of a perfect example of that. Uh, I can just go through my final round right now just to kind of, because I'm throwing the disc really, really well. And I need to work on my putting still. Like last night, I spent about two hours or so putting. And I'm going to probably do that consistently throughout this week to try to get back to. Because I know my circle one putting has been killing me in this tournament as well. I think I was like 70%. Um, like hole 10, which is that easy par five. It's like you got to birdie that hole. I missed a circle one putt, made par. And then the final day, I missed the circle one putt, airballed it to where it rolled OB and then uh, made the comeback for bogey. So it's like, that's three shots right there on that hole that you just can't afford. So I know my mm -hmm. circle one putting is, is killing me right now, but as far as throwing goes, just to give an idea of how well I was throwing the disc, the final day, um, hole one, I was circle one, missed the birdie putt hole two circle one, made it hole three circle one, made it hole four circle one, made it hole five circle one, missed it. Hole six, parked. Hole seven, uh, just outside circle one, missed it. Hole eight was off the fairway, so I didn't have a birdie putt. Hole nine, parked. Hole 10, circle one, missed for birdie. Hole 11, cir uh, circle one, parked. Hole 12, circle one, make. Hole 13, parked. Hole 14, circle one, make. Hole 15, circle two, miss. And that was, and then obviously 16, 17, 18, I ended up... Uh, not finishing too strong with a five over on the yeah. three, but like those holes right there. I mean that throwing the disc that well, 
I was putting myself in a position to be able to shoot 12 under, you know, consistently pretty well. Now I didn't make any of my circle two putts and I missed a couple circle one putts, but that's where it's like, I right now I feel very confident in my throwing. My forehand feels great, which is, which is awesome because at Emporia, which I'm playing today, uh, the forehand is, if you have it, it, it opens up so many opportunities for some of these difficult par fours to get you in the right spots without bringing in OB into play. So I feel great throwing the disc. I just got to get the putter hot again. Yeah. Um, so going into Emporia, um, how like you have you played both courses uh, this week so far? So I got in Sunday. I, I just drove straight in after my round Sunday and was able to kind of just walk around Jones Supreme um, Sunday. And then yesterday we were going to try to play Emporia Country Club, but uh, the course was actually closed. So, and that's something that we can kind of talk about a little bit because uh, it caused some issues, I think. But we ended up going to, excuse me, we ended up going to Jones Supreme and got, you know, our practice round in there. They didn't really change too much with it. It does seem like some OB yeah, lines about to have ask. been either tightened or, or extended. Um, one of the par fours that a lot of a lot of people complained about, they moved the basket to where now it, it was one of those par fours of where it's like if you got a birdie look at it, you were you were one of the few. Where now it's like a, a musket birdie. So interesting. Um, not too many changes on the course layout. Uh, it's, you know, if it's not, if it's not going to be windy and you're throwing the disc in bounds, you know, you're going to be able to score really well out there. So today we're going to try to go out to country club and get around in there. I know they have a couple new holes, um, a couple, uh, they changed up some pins on some, and then they, um, have adjusted some OBs as well. So the nice. courses are going to be playing almost very similar. There's just minor changes on both. Yeah, well, it's good to hear there's at least changes. Cause that's what I was about to ask is, like, does it feel weird like you're coming back to DDO in a sense? Like, from a fan's perspective, it's somewhat weird. But, I mean, it's also, I don't know, I don't personally like it, but I could see where some people don't really care. But from a player's perspective, is it, like, monotonous? Like, oh, we already played this tournament, we're coming back here? Or does it just feel like another week on the road? Yeah, I mean, I, I like both these courses. They're fun to play. Um, I would say for like a major, you would, it's in a weird spot though, right? Because obviously the course, the course played so hard for DDO because of just how windy it was. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a weird situation with disc golf because the wind does affect scores so much more drastically than they do in golf. So they, you would like to see. You know, let's let's just pick like um, what was what was two weeks ago? Two weeks ago was Ledgestone, right? Mm-hmm. So Ledgestone was would the winner end up finishing thirty something? Somewhere in there, I can pull it up. Somewhere around there. So I would think, like for me, to like spice it up a little bit, and I think even maybe from a spectator standpoint, you would like to see them do things to make. This, you know, 26. 26. So you, I, I feel like you would like to see them, you get there and you'd be like, oh, wow, they extended this hole. 
this holds a little bit longer now. Or, oh, they tightened the OB here. This holds a little harder now. Like to do things like that to to make it to make it different in the sense of difficulty, um, because it is a world championship, it is a major. I think that makes sense. The problem that DDO had, or excuse me, the problem that um, Worlds has this year is the the DDO played so hard. So it's like yeah, it can play easier. So like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna make because I think it's you can look at the weather and be like, okay, we're not supposed to really get wins, and it looks like looks that way it looks like nothing's gonna be over 15 all tournament there might be some rain coming in yeah uh which could be interesting but like what are you gonna do you're gonna make it even harder and then all of a sudden what what if wind does there is coming now now it's like now the course is almost unplayable so it is a tricky situation that in that regard but yeah i would i would say like you would normally like to see a course play harder for a major, but yeah, you'd like to see it just get like a, a similar vibe, but just a few strokes harder. I just personally, I think if we're going to a course for worlds, we shouldn't go to that course for a pro tour in the same year. Does that happen in golf? I don't follow golf close enough. Yeah, it happens. It ha- I guess the thing is, is like the reason why it happens in golf and the reason why it'll, it'll probably happen in disc golf as well is I think you can ha- you could potentially have a tournament sign for a contract longer than Worlds is decided, right? So, like, right yes. now, we have no idea where Worlds is going to be in 2027. We have no idea where it is in 2024. Okay, perfect. We have no idea where it is in 2024. <laughs> we have no idea where it is in 2024. So, if TrueBank... Which play, uh, which was the, the title sponsor at Des Moines, right? Mm-hmm. If they're like, "Hey, we really love this. We want to up our contract for five years. We want to do this for five more years, right?" So they do that. Yeah. What happens when Worlds gets decided to go to Des Moines in three years? And so they're like, "Oh, well, we're not actually going to have the event this year." That's where I think a lot of it comes down to, like the sponsorships at these tournaments. They want to still have those tournaments because yeah. they they build their marketing and their sponsorships and all that stuff based around them. So that's why I don't I don't see that ever changing of where that makes sense. Yeah, of where you're you know you're just not going to have a tournament because yeah because Worlds is there. I've always just thought of it from the course perspective. I've never really thought sponsorship wise, but that makes that makes a lot of yeah. sense. I still don't love it, but it makes a lot more sense. And that's why I think um, it's like you have to kind of you have to kind of beef it up. You have to do something to where it, like you're saying, it doesn't just, cause that question of you, you would never ask that question on the PGA tour. I've never heard that question before of being like, Oh, you guys are coming back to Pebble beach for the U S open. Like, does it feel like just the same old, same old or what? Like that would never be a question yeah. asked because the difference between the AT and T and a U.S. Open at Pebble Beach is drastic. Like, players know that the greens are going to be running faster or firmer. Uh, players know that the rough is going to be um, grown out. Players know that they're going to probably have tougher pin locations. They're going to probably move a couple tee boxes back. Like, the course is going to play a lot more difficult. So, that's, I think... I feel like that's easier to, to change in golf, though. Because, like, you don't... Like, a hole, you could take the same hole and not really change much about the design of the hole in golf. But like you were saying, make 
you know, let the rough grow in a little bit. Let the green, you know, I don't know how you let the green harden up, but obviously they can and stuff like that to where it just plays completely different on the same course. You know what I'm saying? Whereas in disc golf, I mean, you can move the OB in, um, but we can't really mess with greens. You can put them closer to trees or something, but like, I don't like that. Um, as actually, I was going to bring this up. I saw in the debate group, the disc golf debate group, where um, I believe it was Alex Russell put on yeah, his what, Instagram what story. Yeah, what Yeah, I thought this was so. Alex Russell put on his Instagram story and said, are we really going to play a major with branches less than 20 inches from a basket? I want to um, hear your and Silas' thoughts on it before I give my take. For I mean, those that are listening, it, for those that are listening, we're talking about whole – uh, do, 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 do. it's like 10 or 11, I want to say, on Jones. And it's essentially a basket that sits in between two of those, like, trees that have, like, the – they're almost like Christmas trees of where they have, like, the different rows of uh, branches coming out. And, like, the bottom branches on this tree, on one of the trees, uh, comes out so far that – you can almost it almost is touching the basket on one side so that kind of gives you a visual of how guarded the basket is but yeah i want to hear what yeah. you and Saz think of this well i'd have to look at the hole as a entirety but play i've played jones east before it's a par four, so i understand it's a par four yeah and a good drive will leave you probably like 375 to 300 like people are gonna have 375 300 wide open shot into the green and are the trees just on one side of the basket or uh, like the tr- completely circled? so the tree that is the picture that they're showing that is on the so the the photos taken from behind the basket shooting down the fairway so the tree that he's kind of close to is on the left side of the basket and then the tree on the other is on the right so there's nothing in between your shot and the basket, if that makes sense. But, like, is there, like, a safe area? Like, if you go past, you know you're going to have a putt type thing? Yes. Yeah, then I don't mind it. I mean, I, I can see where, like, 20 inches of the basket, but there's no PGA guideline of, like, it's got to be two feet away. And in my opinion, like, that one singular branch looks like it sticks out just far for that tree. So, like, if you trimmed it back a foot, what does it really change about the hole? that branch. I think the question that could be asked is like, are we playing a major with a tree this close to the basket? But if there's a safe bailout area, I think a tree is a solid defense of a basket. If there is an area where, you know, if I throw over here, I'm not going to have an obstructed putt because like, that's a smart way to protect a, protect a green and disc golf. Um, if it's fully surrounded and it's like, no, if I get close to this basket, I'm just in a tree. I hate that. But if it's like just strategically placed trees where it's like, yeah, I just got to get 25 long right and i have a wide open putt then like i think that's a good thing because then it it provides not ob but a way to naturally defend the basket without having to get stupid and gimmicky what about you silas yeah yeah just to piggyback off of that um i haven't seen the picture but if it's what i'm picturing i think i don't know it could be a good thing and or a bad thing um and that is because i feel like if you airball a putt and if the tree is that close, it kind of gives you a, a safeguard. You know what I'm saying? So oh, it, it kind of just catches that catches that putt. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't penalize you as much um, as a wide open uh, kind of green would, but that's just, 
That's just me. So my take on it is this is like, this is one of those where it is rewarding more accurate players. So similar to what you were saying, a lot of times we will, majority of times, we see a basket and we're just trying to throw it as close to the basket as possible. We're not thinking about, I need to make sure I miss left. I need to make sure I miss right. I need to make sure I'm short. I need to make sure I'm long. We're literally seeing a basket and we're trying to throw it underneath the basket. And if we end up missing any direction, fine, whatever. I'll try and make a 30 foot putt. This is one of those holes where you can't do that. If yeah. you miss 15 feet left of this basket, you do not have a putt. So I like it in that sense of where we now went from like having a, a you know a circle around a basket where anywhere lands in there, we have a putt, we're happy, to where now it's like a small little slice of pie. The slice of pie is short of the basket, like literally directly short of the basket and like a little bit to the right. I wouldn't even say long is the play there because if you do try to go long, long left is bad and long right isn't great. So like directly long is all right. But like, that's why to me, it's like the the biggest chunk, the biggest sliver is short, right. And so I just think it adds a different element and Obviously, it's not something that's super common. Now, obviously, when you get into woods golf, you a lot of times see sometimes trees, like actual trunks of trees close to the basket. And everyone seems to be fine with that. But in this scenario, it is actually a wall of essentially branches and um, they're not really leaves. It's kind of one of those, it's like one of those ever, it's like I said, it's like a Christmas tree. So it's not. They don't have leaves. Yeah. They have like those little spiky things. Like, like needles. Yeah, needles. Um, so yeah, if you're left, you just don't have a putt. I'm completely fine with it because we all know it's there. We all know when we're playing that hole that if you do go left, you don't have a putt. So mm-hmm. it's one of those situations of where, you know, if you find yourself up over there, you threw a bad shot. So I'm completely fine yeah. with it. I think. I think it's definitely something that, like you said, one of the one of the ways that you can protect a basket, because if you do chop, if you do chop all those branches and stuff down, the defense of that hole pretty much goes away. Yeah, because like that's what I'd be curious is like, if you walked up to that hole and someone like was like, okay, we need a ten foot perimeter around the basket that's safe or whatever, and then you trim that tree up you know, 10 feet in, like, and in my head, picturing the hole, not seeing it in person, that makes it just a much worse hole. Because, like, then, like you were saying, approach shots and stuff like that, a lot less thought goes into it. Because then also a tree like that, when you trim it up, you're also removing the defense that the tree provides. So not only is it like a 10-foot circle, but now it's more like you're in the woods and it's just a tree trunk. Because, like, now if you're under it, you don't have as much of a penalty. Because, like, I don't know. Um... I would also be curious, like, if that was OB that close. It's just a wide open field and there's OB, like, next to the basket just, like that. Would people we complain? We just played hole 16, and it was a blind shot. Hole 16 at DMC is a downhill blind shot 
OB is 10 feet left and 10 feet behind the basket. So long, yeah. la- long left and long, you're OB, and it's a blind shot. I didn't hear any complaints about that. Yeah, so, that's what's weird. It, it's weird in disc golf because like, I feel like – I feel like sometimes if it's a water feature and the basket's right next to it, like some people might, like AMS will definitely say like, well, that's way too close to the water. But most of the time, if the hole's designed right, you're going to hear pros be like, oh my gosh, I have to have a death putt if I go 20 Memorial hole number one. Yeah, exactly. Like but then you put certain things in that situation and like, like the, I personally, as a player, I'd rather have the tree there than OB because if I mess up, I at least have some type of chance to make mm-hmm. a putt, or like, or at least I know I don't have to make a twenty footer for my three. I can just or for my four, I can just lay up and move on. I would rather have that scenario where the the basket's still protected, but it's not protected in a way that's going to like get me a stroke penalty. Um, I just think it's interesting sometimes seeing what people complain about because I'm like, well, what's the alternative? And also, like, if it was two feet or three feet, are we complaining? Like, where where's the line of, like, like because he just complained about the branch, not necessarily the tree being there. So it's like, if that if that branch was three feet away, but the rest of the tree is still yeah. there, what did it change? <laughs> Nothing. So, At least in my head. So something, something that's also interesting, talking about the OBs and stuff, brings up another hole where there is a... Uh, there's a strip of maybe like three or four feet of OB. So just think of like, think of basically a river, but it's only three or four feet. And it's like 10 feet short of the FPO basket. Anything, anything short of this, you know, four foot gap is safe. And anything long of this four foot gap is safe. That's one of those where like, I don't know if I'm a huge fan of that design course design. Um, Granted, there there might – it's been pretty dry, I guess, up here, so there wasn't any water there. I'm guessing maybe when it's, it rains, there is some water there, so I understand that a little bit. But mm-hmm. that course design doesn't necessarily make as much sense to me because – It's a little more random. I think you're just going to end up having – because it's so thin, it's so close yeah. to the basket, you're going to end up having sometimes people, like, miss – like throw a bad shot and the bad shot gets safe and someone throw like almost a great shot and it gets penalized. Like to me, why not just make everything short OB? Yeah. In that regard, because then, because obviously I know what they're trying to do, right? They're trying, they're trying to basically say like, if you want a chance at birdie on this hole, you basically have to pure shot challenge and get over the basket and then have a challenging putt back. But like to me, it's like to, to to take away from the person that threw a perfect shot and maybe the wind just knocks it down a little bit and it hits and it gets, you know, it's 10 feet short, but now it's in this OB versus the person that like doesn't even hit the gap and like hits a tree and drops down. Like, I don't think those two people should get the same score. So I think that's where it's like, if you could go OB all the way from the T now you're setting up to where like only good shots are getting rewarded. Everyone knows if you, everyone knows you need to throw this past the basket. Well, if the, if that OB, instead of being the entire way back to the tee, if that OB was 20 feet wide, does it change how you feel about yeah, I it? I think, I think if you go, 
The only thing is, though, here's the only thing I don't like about that. If you do like 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet wide, what you're going to end up having mm-hmm. now is you're going to end up having people not even going for it. And so you end up having, mm-hmm. and this, I, I feel like we've talked about this before about how in disc golf, if you play safe, it is so much easier sometimes to play safe than it is obviously to like play like you get you get more rewarded i guess is a better way of saying it sometimes if you play safe than if you are trying to go for birdies right so like yeah like the risk reward doesn't balance itself. yeah like to me if you take someone that has a 960 right like that's like one of the top fpo players if you take like a 960 rated mm-hmm. player out to that hole and you had him play it 10 times where they were going for the basket, trying to birdie it. And like you said, we, we make the we make the OB 30 feet, right? You, ha- you play mm-hmm. that hole 10 times, trying to go for the basket. Sure, they might get it a couple times, but they're probably going to get a, a several bogeys as well. So do they end up shooting under for that? Probably. I would say they probably don't. Um, and then you have someone saying uh, same rating, play it 10 times, but just play for par. You know, they can literally just pitch something off 200 feet, jump, putt, par every time, like without fail. So that's where it's like those certain course designs, I think sometimes will. I feel like they did change. Oh, they did that on like hole one. That's a good example. Hole one. You remember the island hole? A lot of people had like talks about that. They added another barrier of rocks behind. So now the wall behind the basket is probably like, almost a foot higher. And then they also have made the drop zone like 40 feet instead of like 60 or something. So the OB is all the same. So you can still just kind of jump putt off and jump putt on and make your par and move on. But I think they are obviously trying to do things to entice people to go for it versus laying up. So, yeah. But those are all very interesting things of like, how do you make it to where, because that's how you're also going to get a lot of scoring separation is if you remove the easy par, if you remove the, uh, okay, I'm just going to play this hole for par. I can't birdie this hole. Like those people that are just like, I can't birdie this hole. So I'm just going to play it for par. If you can somehow remove that, remove that of where yeah. it's just an easy, easy, easy par move on. Um, I think you're also going to get, see some more exciting disc golf, but it's hard. It's hard to do. It's a hard. No, it's definitely hard way a, of doing it. a fine line. Uh, before we get, we're going to keep talking about worlds here in a second. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of today's podcast. Uh, do you guys happen to know what the fastest growing crime is in America? Fastest growing identity theft. It, you are right. Wait, it's identity it really? theft, and there's a new victim. Yeah, there's a new victim every 14 seconds. Uh, I, don't I don't know if you guys ever had, that's, you know, that's terrible. Yeah, no, it's not. not, It's not. Well, you were right. You you can cheer for being right, but don't cheer for identity theft. Um, (laughs) But I've personally had like my credit card information stolen before and you just go on and it's like that scary moment of like, hey, Liz, did we actually spend this much at Amazon? And she's like, no. And you're like, okay, thank goodness. But it's obviously a very scary moment. Isn't it weird too that we like people talk about this a lot because when you're in Europe and stuff, they bring like the credit card thing to your table. Like when you're at a restaurant. So like your credit card yeah. never leaves your hand, but like here in the states, we just hand someone some random stranger that we just met. We just hand them our credit card, and we're just like, 
That's a good point. And that's kind of what you do with your information a lot of times online. And that's why I'm excited to partner with today's sponsor, Aura. That transition, I mean, I'm pretty proud of that. Aura's identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, VPN, password management, and antivirus software all combined into one easy-to-use app. You might find you might have one of these services already, but if you don't have all the tools, it's like locking your front door but leaving the back door wide open. Those who've had that, their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. Imagine trying to log into your email account one day only to see the password it's changed hours ago, and then you start getting notifications of activity from your bank, credit cards, crypto accounts, etc. It's a scary and unfortunately a reality for far too many people. Thankfully, Aura monitors the dark web for your emails, passwords, and social security numbers and sends you alerts fast right to your phone and email. Trevor and I actually both have signed up for this. Um, and Trevor, within like five or 10 minutes, it found his main password on the dark web like two or three times. And I fortunately didn't have my password on the dark web, but it found my information, my passwords being sold by like these whatever, uh, whoever scumbags do that and was able to, you know, help prevent that from happening. So pretty important service here. It also gives you near real-time alerts on suspicious credit inquiries, like if someone was trying to open a loan or credit card in your name, and the VPN allows you to stay anonymous online by keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. So protect your family and yourself from identity theft at Aura.com slash Foundation Disc Golf. It's also linked below in the description. And if you sign up right now, Aura is going to give you a two-week free trial with our link so you can see for yourself how many times Aura finds you or your family members' personal info on the dark web. And if you sign up, let me know in the comments down below if your, inf- if your personal information was compromised because you're not going to regret checking. So huge shout out to Aura for sponsoring today's Identity podcast. Identity theft happens a lot too in disc golf. People are just taking, you know, they, they find a disc and it has your name on it and they're just like, you know what? I'm just going to, this is mine now. That's mine now. Yeah, that's true. Maybe Aura can get into disc golf. I don't, think, I don't know if you can solve that one. Uh, I did want to, we skipped over this at Des Moines. Um We'll come yeah, back to, to Worlds about, a little bit. We skipped a little over bit about the results a little bit at Des Moines because obviously with with the the way that the tournament shaped out, like we had some um, some unfamiliar and some familiar faces at the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, well, well, Evan Smith, we got to see at the Battle right, for Bedford. That kid's good. Um, yeah, well, that's what I said about him and Robert Burridge. Is both of them had a complete game? Like watching them play on Sunday, which. I think it was a unique situation again because of the storm on Saturday. Evan Smith and Robert Burridge were able to get onto a lead card, stay on the lead card without having to face lead card gallery, camera, pressure until the final day. Neither of them really cracked. Robert Burridge didn't crack at all. Evan Smith, you could say cracked, but he hung around there. It's not like he fell off the face of the earth. So it didn't really affect either of them per se. But I was very impressed with both of their games. I think they both have a super bright future ahead of them. And then... The playoff that ended up happening was electric. Um, it obviously, I think there was unfortunate stuff on both sides. Simon, the, Simon's unfortunate came via the new Mando rule on hole twelve. I don't oh, know if you saw I that knew whole that thing. That was gonna happen too when it. Well, first off, like his first throw, like I was like, Did that missed the Mando. Mando's. That's that was the initial Mando's question. So yeah. hard. Like I love Mando's because you have to. Certain holes, like you have, it's an interesting one because not everyone is sold on a Mando, but I think with just how easy it is to manipulate a disc and with how easy it is to break holes, you have to sometimes force players to throw certain shots. You have to, or else the whole, like I think hole 13, I will not be surprised. It was one of the new holes. Would not be surprised if there's a Mando on that hole. Because what did I do all three rounds? 
I chucked a spike hyzer up into the trees and just had it plink go down. When you can definitely yeah. tell they wanted you to kind of go through that middle gap and then through the tunnel. Um, so I think Mandos definitely are needed. But that being said, sometimes, like this Mando, it is so hard to tell. Because it's not just like one tree or a flagpole or a, you know, a telephone pole in the middle of a field. And you're like, yep, you missed the Mando. Like this was a, like a couple trees all bunched together on the left. And there was just like a Mando sign that said like this way. So like, yeah, who knows if he even made the Mando initially? It, you could not tell in coverage. You kind of no. lost the disc. No. And well, Simon even turned around and was like, did I make that? And his car mates immediately were like, yeah. And most yeah, of the time. You made it. So like, apparently someone could see, he was obviously like, I'm not sure if I made it. And on coverage, yeah, I was clueless. And then Initially. he got like a ricochet and then another ricochet. And I guess the disc ended up going backwards. Yeah, it went back. So it went like basically around the right Mando and then back into the restricted space, which the whole restricted space thing, I think this goes back to what we continuously talk about on this show, where the Pro Tour needs separate rules from the rest of the PDGA. Because the whole reason, from my understanding, that the PDGA came up with this restricted space, restricted plane idea is because a lot of times Mandos are used for safety, which my opinion on this has completely changed. If you go back to like early, early grip locked episodes, I always talked about how I thought Mandos should only be used for safety and they were stupid to have just like in the air. Once I've watched a lot more disc golf and I understand the professional scene a lot more, I flipped. I think Mandos should never be used for safety because like if you're protecting a playground, you're like with a you can put a mando there and yeah people aren't going to do spike hydras over it but someone might still grip lock into that playground which is not put a hole next to a playground also we're on a pro tour why are we playing next to a playground but that was what the pdga i'm using the playground because that's what someone from the pdga used to defend this rule was like oh the restricted space makes sure that even if simon makes the mando and then comes backwards he doesn't he still isn't throwing through through the playground and it's like okay but let's let's address a bigger issue why are we playing next to a playground in that scenario but a Mando, like, on the Pro Tour, most of the time is used, like you were just saying, to f ask you to do this shot. Simon executed that shot, right? Once he executed that shot, he then got penalized just because he got through the gap and then got kicked backwards. We got double, and we got double also, penalties, right? Like, that's where yeah. I don't like the double penalty there because he would have been penalized enough, I think, because he, he... Trying yeah, to get up and down from the Mando, there. So he, that's fine, but it wasn't a good shot. So it's the same exact thing as yeah. someone that makes it through the Mando and has it turn over into the, the crap over on the left. Like, their penalty now is they're in the crap and they got to try to figure out how to get up and down. Could he have gotten up and down from yeah. where he was? I don't know. Um, it's tough to say. They never really gave us a good angle. I, I mean, I would like to think that there was probably – he probably had a shot, but it, it wasn't – He would have had at least a chance to give us a putt. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't – I'm not a fan of that rule. I think that rule. Well, I, yeah. think that, that, I don't yeah. understand it. I don't get it. I get what they were initially thinking about it, but I think they're thinking in the scope of like local C tiers and B tiers. And then when you take a rule like that and apply it to the pro tour, you get something like this where it's like, this is where it's stupid. Like it doesn't make any sense. Have, uh, we already have like the, the luck factor, I guess you want to say of where on that hole, for example, there's OB right of the basket, right? So you could have a situation where 
Someone throws it through the Mando, clips a tree, goes OB right. Someone else throws it through the Mando, barely misses a tree and not OB. So you already have like those kind of kicks. I don't think we need to add in like an extra element of something where it's like you make the Mando, but oh, you got a really unfortunate kick. And so now you actually didn't make the Mando. Like, I don't think we need to add in more elements of like flukiness to basically cause issue would be what I would. Yeah. Well, then uh, the other tweet I put out was if we are doing this, if we are saying restricted space, restricted plane, it's got to be clear because like you had Jeff Spring and the entire card staring at this thing for like four minutes on coverage and they couldn't decipher. I'm like, at that point, like, how are we calling well, that so where he didn't make too, it? Because where, so where they are on that right side, because it's based off of the right side Mando, where they are on the right side, mm-hmm. the basket is kind of tucked in behind these bushes up by the green, because I'm pretty sure it's perpendicular. It should be perpendicular. No, the, the TD can draw at whatever angle they want. So they were just had to go off of what arrow, oh. he, what angle he drew oh, the so arrow. Off of the yeah. arrow? Just the arrow, what direction that's pointed. That's it. No, the TD can just, (laughs) like, the PDJ put out a graphic, and the TD can decide what angle that Mando goes. So, like, it could have been pointed back to the T, and then he's completely fine. But, like, it's pointed out, and then it was just an arrow. So then it's like, that's what you heard Evan Smith and them saying, like, which way is the arrow pointing? We're not even talking about, like, there was spray paint on the ground with an arrow saying, continue this line. We're literally talking about an arrow that is like a cardboard or wood arrow that is is on a tree. That's like, oh, was that it? We we couldn't tell on coverage. We just heard them talking about I'm, the arrow. I don't remember seeing anything on the ground. I could be wrong. I, I didn't. Wrong. I didn't know. But you regardless, even if it was on the ground, even if it was on the ground, it's just a painted arrow on the ground. In my mind, like. If we're using that, you got to have a string like 30, 40 feet or a line I mean, or something to where that decision happens immediately. You have to have a line like really far to the point of where you're like, it's yeah. impossible for anyone to go further than this. Well, that's what uh, someone, when I was, this uh, OB rule um, that a TD ta- taught me is when you're painting OB lines as a TD, go to where you think it's impossible anyone could get here and then paint another yeah. 30 feet. And then you should be okay. So I think that applies to this Mando rule is go where it's like, this is impossible for a disc to get all the way over here and then add like 20 feet to it. That's and then good, you should be safe. That's a good way to think but about it. regardless, let's not add just one foot max little arrow and then have the entire card and the literal commissioner of the league staring there and be like, I don't know, <laughs> tough call. I have no idea. Because the rule also says it has to clearly cross. So why are we adding ambiguity to the rule by putting the word clearly in there? Because then Simon could be like, hey, guys, we've stared at this five minutes. I think it's safe to say I didn't clear, I'm not clearly yeah. the in the restricted space. The one thing I will say about Simon, though, this is playing with him and watching him, is he is he is one of the guys that you wish you had everyone on tour of where he knows when there's a rule like that. He, he could have easily kind of bullied his way or – or yeah. basically it was like, like you were just saying, like, all right, we've been looking at this for way too long. You guys don't, I'm safe. I have to be safe. Like you could have done yeah. that. And there are some people that do that, which make it very awkward. They always, 
even when they're kind of in the wrong and you kind of know they're in the wrong, they will always try to fight to, to – he's one of the few guys – I wouldn't say few. That's – didn't mean to say few. There's a lot of people like this. But he for sure is – and I give a lot of respect to him for that. He's for sure one of the people that is like, all right, I'm OB. Or all right, I missed the Mando. Yeah. And, and just goes from it. Well, yeah. I mean, he was able to bounce back pretty quick and well, yeah, then birdie, birdie the last like, five holes. After that hole. No, I think he parred thirteen. Oh, you're right. You're and right. then birdied fourteen through eighteen, and then birdied the, um, the the last five. You're right. Yeah, to get into the playoff, and then obviously during the playoff, Robert Burridge. They had first off. I was very excited. It didn't end on three. I was gonna be very sad if it ended on three because like they both threw a similar shot and one hit a tree and one didn't. Because um, obviously there's just so much talk about hole three's design on the coverage, at least the whole whole tournament. So I was very excited on three when Robert hit that like 60 footer, whatever he hit that Simon was able to hit his 40 footer and push it. It was electric for the playoff, but also I was excited just didn't end on three. And then Robert obviously Stumpgate threw an insanely good shot on hole four and just super unlucky break. Just got massive skip off the off a stump. And it didn't even leave him a wide open 40 footer, put him behind, behind a tree where it was a very, actually, I'd be curious your take. What, what are you running that putt? Or are you laying that putt up? His putt on I mean, I would uh, throw hole four. A scuba, so it'd be like a soft, it'd be a soft, uh, run. but if you're not comfortable yeah. throwing a scuba, then yeah, you lay up. You don't, you yeah. don't. Cause here's the thing. It's, it's a numbers game. The, per, the percentage yeah. of you making that putt, is drastically smaller than the percentage of Simon missing his putt, right? So you you yeah. do the numbers, like you making that putt, yeah, five percent, three percent, and if you miss, you're pretty much now is hit. if you miss the putt, if you're trying to make it and you miss the putt, Simon wins. So you're giving yeah. Simon at that point a, a drastically huge advantage versus Simon make like, obviously he just cashed it in and it was no doubt but I would still say like there was maybe a 50 60% chance Simon misses that putt right you got yeah, I mean, you got to take those yeah. odds you got to take those odds yeah, because I think what people are getting confused with a little bit is like this scenario is a lot different than some of the other well, scenarios the where Look what you, you always three. He misses that, yeah. but there's a good chance that goes into the water OB. But Simon, yeah, but that Simon I like that run. Also in a very Simon was in a much better position on hole three to birdie. He was just outside the circle, so it's like yeah. in that situation you yeah. got to think Simon's going to make his putt. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all, like that's what I'm saying is like we've we've talked about in this podcast and on Grip Locked a lot of like when you're in a, a late game scenario, taking it into your own hands. So it's not like you don't want to give someone else the chance. Like if you have a chance to win, you want to take that chance and and be aggressive in that scenario. But not always, because this scenario in my head, the two options are: if I miss this, I'm handing Simon the win. If I lay up, I'm forcing mm-hmm. Simon to take it from me. Basically, because there's also the scenario of like, I lay up, Simon runs it, clanks off the cage and you it rolls win. OB, yeah. I win. Like that, that hole, that green, so, he, you know, finicky that you would hate ball, to, you know, he just, it comes out weird. Yeah. There's a lot of other ways that you still win if you lay up. If you run it, there's only one way you win. 
and it's if you make it and Simon mm-hmm. still misses his. So, like, pretty much either way, you need Simon to miss his putt. I'd rather lay up. Um, but, yeah, I think it was a general consensus he did the right thing. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. If it was wide open, that I yeah. might be having a different conversation. If it was, like, a wide open 40-footer, yeah, maybe run it because you're, like you're feeling great right then. But with that tree. footer It was, like, probably close to 50. No, it was, like, 45. Yeah, because Simon was Simon was at about forty, and he yeah. was inside. Was obviously, probably close to fifty with a tree. Like he was gonna have to throw some weird anti putt or some like high hyzer putt from like fifty feet. Like yeah, he he did the smart thing there, and uh, you know it just didn't go in his favor. It didn't work out, and um, you know it's one of those situations though. As a player, you hope like that wasn't your your one shot, and after watching him yeah. play. And seeing like you know all the tools he has, like it wasn't like he just had a magical run, you know, like he yeah. showed that he he's a player. And I think that's this is so exciting for the pro tour too. Now is like because of how disc golf has been in the past, and because of how, like I said, the same people get on feature cards over and over and over again, and you only ever see feature cards, so you never see. You know, you never see the person, uh, you never see Chandler Kramer, who was, what, 10 under through 12 or 13 under through 15 or whatever he was. Like, you'll never, it's very hard yeah, a crazy. lot of times to see those people having those those crazy rounds. So, like, the name recognition a lot in disc golf is so small. But it's it's starting to get to the point of where guys are popping off and where you can see these guys jumping up leaderboards and stuff. And I think that just makes it so much more interesting to where, you know, it can come from anywhere. It can really come from anywhere. Someone can have a hot round and all of a sudden, boom, they're up in they're up in the uh, competing for the win. So this is to me, this is what makes, you know, these individual sports so exciting is when you have a wide variety of people that can pop off at certain tournaments and, and have a chance to win. Yeah, no, I full I fully agree. It didn't it did not have any feel like this was the last time we're going to see Robert Burge yeah. or Evan Smith because their their games. There's some players where it's like, oh yeah, this course fits that play style, or yeah, you, but you can see all these holes in their game, and it's just one area is really working. You, you, you couldn't really see too many holes in their game, and they also didn't seem to be cracked by the pressure. I think part of it is Robert Burge especially had such a successful amateur career, winning I believe two majors. Uh, as it am to where he's been in the hot spotlight, been in that type of pressure. Obviously, it's a different type of pressure, but once you've proven you can win in high pressure situations, that's a whole different skill that you have to put yourself in high pressure situations to be able to develop that skill and to have this type of quality uh, scenario. I guess you could put this early in your career. Highly unlikely that's the last. And it, it wasn't so. Yeah, and the other very exciting stuff. It wasn't like he was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't at like a silver series, and he was going toe to toe with another no. person that's never won before. He was going against, yeah. I hate to, I mean, I don't know what your guys' power rankings are, but probably the number one player in the world. We have him at number you, two. You have Ricky still one. We have nobody at number one. We said nobody deserves number one right now. We have we have Eagle as a ghost number one, and we said it depending on what he does at Worlds, he it's his spot. Okay. He just has to take it. Uh, we have a blank number I one. Mean, right I think now. Simon's the number one player in the world. 
Well, that that was the the next. But the the tough part is his last three finishes were like twenty fifth, twenty third, sixteenth, and then first sure, again. But he's had three wins, and he, so yeah, is Ricky. But, and Ricky just won last week. He did win last weekend, but I mean, your power rankings—you got to go off of like you have to this week. If you're doing power rankings, this week has to count for more than the previous week. Yeah. What's that well, we were looking at going game? into Worlds 20-something, I think. Or maybe last week might have been 16. It was either 23rd or 16th, somewhere in there. But we were also looking like going into Worlds, Eagle's yeah. coming back for Worlds. Eagle, the only history we have with him is he just showed up and shot incredible European Open. And if it wasn't for Paul, would have absolutely bullied everyone. Also, so it's like Eagle's probably the number one player like going into right it. Right up Eagle's alley, of course. That's what I'm saying. Like going into Worlds, I feel comfortable saying Eagles the number one player in the world going into Worlds, but he also hasn't played. So that's why he put him in that ghost spot where it's like this is his spot. He just he 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 hasn't taken it yet. Depending on what he does at Worlds, it's his. So that's where we ended at. But I want to bring up one final topic as we wrap up the show. Uh, it was also in the disc golf debate group. But I thought this was fascinating because of the results. So someone put up a poll and said, "What is the most you you would pay to play a bad A disc golf course?" Um, and then they had $5, $10, $20, $30, $40, $50, $75, $100. And 52% of the people put $20, which is a lot higher than I expected, personally. 24% said 10 12% said 30 2% said 5 It did ask the most you'd pay. Um, but I don't know. I just Because when I'm thinking disc golf and thinking pay to play, I think like 10 bucks a round is like the sweet spot in my head because you can't have like we talked about in golf you have so many amenities that come alongside you paying to play in disc golf you, there's not that many amenities and the keep up of the course yeah, is so much like, cheaper it's I don't like, know I just thought it was interesting I honestly think the the greatest thing for golf is carts right yes. like that is the greatest thing in golf is carts and so like Eagles Crossing is, you know, or even I haven't played Maple Hill yet, but those are like the two kind of pay for play where they, they have staff out there taking care of the course and all that stuff. Like, does that really do it for me? Probably not. Because how much different you've played Eagle Crossing, like how much different is Eagles Crossing compared to New London as far as like in shape? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's just you, the property, I guess, is technically better. But Eagles Crossing, I think, is too but expensive, I, personally. My point is just, like, when you play New London, do you think, like, oh, man, this course isn't maintained at all? And you play new, and you play Eagles Crossing? No. Because, like, that's the other thing, too, with that disc golf, or golf has is, like, the greens. If, if you pay mm-hmm. for a cheap greens fee, like, somewhere, there's a chance that the greens aren't great. If you're paying like a hundred bucks or something to play somewhere, it's pretty much guaranteed that the greens are going to be good. And that matters so much. Mm -hmm. No one likes playing on greens where the ball is bouncing around and, and all that disc golf. We don't really have that. So it's like, I mean, and also it's like, does it really, do you care if the fairways are like a little, like there's not grass everywhere or, you know, to really for a disc golf course to be maintained, you got to cut the grass so the grass isn't crazy long. And you just got to have, like, the tee pads fine. That's it. I can't really think of it. 
Yeah. Well, I think the I think the one key because this will bring us back to world slightly to wrap it all up is the one thing that's nice about pay to play courses is a lot of times it's only disc golf. So that is the property. So you're paying to not have people camping in your fairway or being on another property. Like, like sometimes the pay to play courses right now are on golf courses and you're like, you're paying, but you, you don't feel like you belong there to a certain extent. Uh, or like, you, you know, you were just saying at Emporia country well, club, we're playing with golfers today. Yeah, world is there next week. Yeah. Worlds is there next week. You have golfers courses closed on Monday, you know, Hope the course surely isn't closed so, next Monday, which yeah, so, that would be so something. The, uh, the way that it's set up right now is the PDGA, you have to have the course set up four days in advance. So yes. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday are like the official practice rounds. However, I think Saturday, like Jones is closed because they're doing the mixed doubles there. Like the, the whatever. So Interesting. that kind of that kind of knocks I out don't like that. practice rounds on Jones, but um, I guess we can finish the show with just like your thoughts on that. If like is four days enough? Because the the thing with disc golf is like so many holes are so. Like, it's not just – you don't just walk up to a 300-foot shot and go, oh, this – okay, 300-foot shot, this is the disc. And you go to another 300-foot shot, oh, it's the same disc. Like, so many holes are very dependent on um, not not just the wind direction, but also just, like, the shape of the hole. Like, it – you the, the fact that you can manipulate disc so much and you might be able to throw backhand, forehand, rollers, like, I think you do need more time to figure out what you're going to do at holes and more time to practice than you do like in a golf situation of where you can play one round of golf and sure you might not have all the kind of, all right, I want to miss on this side of the green. Cause this side's like that stuff takes a little bit of time to figure out, but for the most part you can get through a round of golf and kind of have an idea how to play the course where golf a lot of times you still have like these question marks of like okay i played that hole but i still don't know if this is for sure the play or this is the play and now you add the fact that we're doing two courses so we have to learn 36 holes essentially is four days enough that's a good question like is is having the course set up four days before the world championship also where we are playing a five round event we're not even playing four rounds. We're playing five rounds. Is four days enough? Yeah. Well, I think four days is enough to have the course fully set up. Meaning, like, four days before, you need to have, like, where signs are going to be, OB lines, like, fully painted, all of that. But I would think a week before, you should have, like, the OB flagged. Or, like, at least so the players have an idea when they're playing it. It's not like... Like, for instance, Winthrop Gold, if you show up to Winthrop in the offseason and the ropes aren't up, that course is, like, nothing compared to when you show up at USDGC because the OB changes it so much. So, like, if you go out to Emporia and you have a rough idea of what you think the OB is going to be, and then you're like, oh, this shot works perfect, and then you get to there, you play that, you know, today through Thursday, and then you're like, all right, Friday, you show up and you know exactly what the shot is, and it's like, oh, this shot I practiced all week's OB because nothing was flagged. And then on Friday, they just paint it. 
I think that's where, like, I'm okay with the course being fully set up four days before, but I do think it should have... Okay, perfect. Because I think, think to me, that's the line of, like, you need to know at least when you're practicing, like, safe, not safe, and then, like, if the banners and, like, the course gets finished, like, polished four days before, that's completely fine. Because most of the time, that type of, like, end final touches aren't really changing your play too much. But, yeah, if you showed up in, like, some of these courses, a hole might just look like it's a wide-open field, and then you get there, and, like, once they finish the course, you're like, oh, shoot, all this OB's here, and I had no idea or something. That's where I don't think four days would be enough. But if the OB's, like, flagged and stuff to where you, you know, but the PDGA, the four-day limit, does make it where if they wanted to, they could just go out Friday morning yeah, and do everything. And to where you could be playing and, like, have no idea what's what it's going to be like and then friday the and entire course the changes policy needs to be addressed because you could say like oh well the, the course just needs to be set up because like you you kind of just threw out seven days or whatever and you just threw out a day like i think it does need to be addressed of like is it four days before is it five days is it six days you know what what is it actually because you can't necessarily just do like after the last event right because if they knew, I'm sure they did, that people were going to leave Des Moines and come straight to Worlds and be here on Monday, you know, they're going to be here Monday, Tuesday, you know, all those days and the course isn't set up till Friday, like that might cause some issues, right? But the problem is like, okay, yeah. well, what happens next year if the event before Worlds next year is a Silver Series and you have some of the top people being like, well, I don't need points, so I'm just going to go straight to Worlds two weeks before. Like, Okay, well, now you have a bunch of people there two weeks before. Does the course need to be set up now, two weeks before? So I do think there needs to be, right now it's four days. I do think there needs to be an actual number of days that the course needs to, and like you said, I think that's a good way of saying it, where the course will be like laid out, like as far as playing wise, you can play the course the way it's going to be played X amount of days before the event. And four days before the event, the course will be finalized as far as, like you said, banners, bleachers, all that stuff. Um, but I think that's the question of, like, I think that number is probably six. That's what kind of what I would, like, lean towards. Um, and that basically gives you, if you do come in on that day, it gives you three days to practice one course, three days to practice the other course. And I think that's plenty of time. Yeah, I think I think six or seven is that's just the number in my head uh, where it made the most sense. So, but yeah, I mean, because you, you, I don't think Emporia, I don't think there's gonna be really issues of like, oh my gosh, like they they seem to have everything under control. Like you were saying, it's already painted, but you could see where it could be an oh my gosh type situation well, in the year, wrong scenario. Last with year they painted the OBs. Uh... Yeah. Like, yeah, can they change like, OBs overnight like one time before or something before the tournament? And like people, people were throwing shots yeah. and being like, "This was in bounds yesterday. Now it's not." You know, you just want to try yeah. to eliminate those as much as possible. Yeah. Um, now, what's our plan for the show next week? Are we going to film Monday and still release on Tuesday, or because because you'll have your first yeah, round of Worlds right. a week from um, today? Crap, I didn't really think about that. Yeah, how do, how do you want to do about that? We can do – do we want to I'm, do like I'm a fine. fun, uh, a little special one and add, bring in Trevor too for it since it is the the episode before Worlds? 
I'm fine with that. Yeah, do it on we, you and do it on Monday. We'll film on Monday, drop it on Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, think it's probably yeah, the smartest. Just come up with uh, if we want to still because the other thing, yeah, I mean, I guess we still do grip locked and debate night. So yeah, just come up with maybe come up with maybe a couple things like that we can all discuss leading up to it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. We'll do. All right. So that'll be the plan. We'll make a debate night world special. Uh, and we'll definitely have you predict what your first round's going to be. Because by Ooh, the time it comes fun. out, your first round will be over. So that'll be interesting. And we can also try to predict what the scores were for that day and just see how stupid we look. when Because it, like, it's, when it's so out, tough, you can't, round one will be over. So I think that'll be, be interesting. Judge but judge it off of DDL, which is going to be... Yeah. Yeah, it'll, yeah, it'll be great. It'll be perfect. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed. Um, week off this week, technically for the play, and then World Championship starts next Tuesday. But like we just said, we'll be back here same time, same place for you to enjoy. We'll talk to you then.